Welcome to the Tech Podcast. Join us as we discuss highly relevant and compelling acquisition topics with highly esteemed industry professionals and attempt to share information with you, the 1102 workforce, program officials, and our contractor friends. We hope that you find our topics and discussions helpful and enjoy this episode of Tech Talks. Hello to you all. I hope this finds you safe and healthy. Welcome to this episode of the TAC Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Junda. Today we have yet another fantastic panel ready to take on a noteworthy discussion. The process of determining evaluation factors and criteria, writing them into a solicitation, writing proposals to address the areas the government finds important, and evaluating those proposals can be complex, laborious, and sometimes mysterious. Today, we would like to give a peek behind the curtain and walk through that process from the government's perspective. We plan to hit on a number of areas to assist our fellow 1102s in this process and provide industry some considerations when writing proposals. To accomplish this, we have three wonderful guests with us today. Back by popular demand, we have Chuck Ross. Uh, Chuck, as you know, brings many years of varied experience to this discussion. We also have Cara Vericchio who is a contracting officer currently working under the tax T4NG IDIQ, where she routinely executes best value evaluations. Finally, we have Jamie Ford, who is Deputy Chief Counsel for the Procurement Law Group in VA. Jamie and his team have always been supporters and enablers for the TAC. Jamie has many years of experience as an attorney for the Army and here at VA. And uh, the relationship we have with Jamie's team of attorneys is probably what most 1102 organizations desire to have. So happy to have you all on the show today and uh, welcome to the show. So just one more point before we dive into the discussion. Uh, In a separate episode, we focused on the multi-step advisory process and technical demonstrations. So this episode will be slightly broader, uh, encompassing uh, virtually all the evaluation factors and more touching on maybe a traditional written approach. Uh, Okay, so uh, let's get started here. And uh, Kara, if I could just open up and asking you, um, we'll kind of start in the beginning of the process here, but uh, as you're leading the procurement team into um, a solicitation, a best value solicitation, um, how do you guide the team in determining exactly what factors to evaluate and even within those factors, you know, specifically what you want the vendors to propose to? Sure, Mark. So um, it's important to for me to listen to my customers um, to find out what's most important to them, um, to find out what their um, outcome is, what they want from the contractors. Um, so in a best value situation, um, technical price and past performance are um, the factors we use the most, um, followed by uh, small business and vets involvement. Um so I go through um, with my customer the, the weightings of these factors, um, and we talk amongst ourselves about what's most important. Um, in addition to that, once we determine those factors, uh, we go through the performance work statement to determine what parts of the performance work statement we're going to use uh, to evaluate the proposals. Um, we call those discriminators. And... Um, the way I explain my dis, uh, what discriminators are, are uh, I call it my steak and potatoes example. So um, you go to a steakhouse and you're looking for uh, you're looking for a dinner, a steak dinner, and you go to the steakhouse looking for good steak. 
So you think of your steak as the discriminator and the potatoes and the vegetables and everything as the rest of the PWS. So when you go to the restaurant, you're looking to, for how the steak is cooked and you know you're going to get the rest of the stuff with it. So that's how you have to look at your discriminators when you're evaluating proposals. You are going to evaluate the steak as you would a contractor proposal, knowing that you're going to get all the sides with it as the PWS. So um, that's hopefully uh, a, a short breakdown of, of how you evaluate your um, contractor proposals using a discriminator. Yeah, um, that's, um, I, I like the illustration, you know, just focusing on the most important part. You know, you don't pick a steakhouse based on the, uh, the potato or the sides, but you, you pick the steakhouse best up based on the best steak. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to focus our evaluations on the most important things. And uh, so in technical, um, yeah, we, de we definitely want to want to focus. Now you're on T4NG. And uh, as you said, typically that you, you evaluate technical price and past performance. Um, when we're soliciting open market, uh, if it's not uh, set aside, we might be um, evaluating the small business or veterans involvement um, or potentially other factors too. So let me open up to the, the rest of the group. Um, what are your considerations when you're trying to determine the right evaluation factors? Um, this, is, this is Jamie. Thanks, Mark. Um, uh, you know, in, in looking at this, this question, I think the kind of the most fundamental thing, it's along with the, the stake example, is what are they willing to pay uh, price premium for? You know, when, when we're doing a best value trade-off, as we often are, the, the real question is, uh, for the technical people, what, what areas of the PWS would you be willing to, to pay more for, the, the price premium? You know, and ultimately, that you really should kind of guide what your evaluation factors are, what your discriminators are going to be, and, and ultimately, as we evaluate, um, there's a lot of discretion in evaluations, but the, the biggest, most fundamental point is we are going to lay out in the solicitation what we're going to do, and offers should focus on what we've requested, um, and as, as attorneys reviewing evaluations and, and solicitations, we're really just going to be ensuring that we have evaluated how we said we were going to evaluate. You know, the PWS paragraphs we said we were going to evaluate, the factors and uh, uh, and basically to ensure we are consistent. Yeah, all, all great points. And uh, so many times we do pick, you know, our most important PWS paragraphs or the most important part of the scope uh, for a contractor to propose to and for us to evaluate. Um, and, and probably that is often how we do it. But uh, um, as I said in another episode, we talk about uh, technical demonstrations, whether virtual on site, but we also sometimes do written sample tasks. Um, Kara, I know we had talked about uh, earlier, um, you know, before the show that uh, on, on one of your procurements, you're, you're writing kind of a sample tasking. Can you just talk about how you kind of work through that with the team and w why you would determine to evaluate a sample task over maybe a PWS task? The VA currently has, you know, a lot of uh, issues that we're looking for contractors to help us uh, solve. So the purpose of having a sample task as a, um, as a discriminator is to have the contractors um, read this sample task as a real-life situation, as a mock situation um, that the VA is going through as an issue and write their response to us as how they would resolve that issue. And that's how we would evaluate their response to uh, a VA's real-life problem. And... Um, 
we think that that's a that's an, another way to um, fulfill our requirements. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Just uh, another way that uh, we, we could evaluate their proposal, either a PWS task or maybe a sample task or a technical de a demonstration. So there's definitely multiple ways to skin the cat here. Um, so then um, how do we how do we evaluate their proposal? Um, oftentimes we use the uh, the understanding um, of the problem and feasibility of approach that we um, that we put in our evaluation plans. And if the tech is ever debriefed, you, we've probably shared them. How do they factor into our evaluation? Those are really the, the framework that uh, we point evaluators to when, when they're looking at different offers proposals. Uh, the solicitation will lay out kind of the PWS paragraphs to, to evaluate. Um, and as evaluators look for strengths and weaknesses, uh, whether significant or uh, significant strengths or significant weaknesses or deficiencies, they're really looking at those evaluation considerations, um, understanding and, and feasibility. Um, you know, as attorneys, when, when we review them, we're looking for consistency with the solicitation, but all of those strengths and, and weaknesses or deficiencies, well, strengths and weaknesses especially, normally are within the, the framework or the consideration of, of the offer's understanding as demonstrating the proposal or the feasibility of the, uh, the approach, which also usually includes risk. Right. So if I'm a vendor and I'm writing a proposal, uh, I should be asking myself, um, what a, how am I showing that I understand the problem and how am I highlighting that my approach is highly feasible? And maybe that would help guide them in what to write and maybe highlight certain things over other things. Um, I know that's uh, in our debriefs, that's, that's often um, a consideration that uh, or some feedback we provide them. Okay, so you know we have the factors. We've talked heavily about the technical factor, which uh, is is considerable. Um, but we uh, we list all the factors we're going to evaluate: whether technical, price, past performance, veterans involvement, and we do weight them. And under FAR 15, we have to provide weightings. And from the non-technical um, uh, or from the technical factor, I'm sorry, the uh, non-price factors, we have to discuss how they're weighted towards the price factor. Um, under FAR 13, we don't necessarily have to provide the weightings. We could, but uh, we don't necessarily have to. So uh, we've, we've listed our evaluation factors. We put it in the, uh, in the solicitation. Now they're proposing, uh, what, are, what are some guidelines, maybe some general considerations we could give the, the offers in proposing back? And I'm just thinking things like um, uh, terms and conditions, kind of compliance issues, uh, things like that. Any any thoughts, any considerations we could give vendors? One, one point that I would make with uh, kind of all those terms, conditions, um, th there are a lot of specifics in a proposed, in, in a solicitation. And those conditions um, are things that should be pretty easy to, to meet. But offers need to pay particular attention to all those little things um, that could you know, render a quote unacceptable. One, one thing is just timeliness. Um, you, you know, and when an offer is, is due, uh, a proposal due date, um, that's something that just can't be, be missed because ordinarily uh, late is late for, for government contracts. Um, but even apart from timeliness, there are often terms and conditions that are put in that could render the quote unacceptable. So at the most basic level, and we can probably talk about some specifics, you know, anything that raises a question as to whether you are offering to meet the government's requirement 
is going to need to be evaluated by the, the government and, and could render it unacceptable and perhaps not even evaluate it. So, so let me ask, um, you, uh, you, you mentioned the timeliness issue. And from one perspective, uh, a vendor might be thinking, you know, if I'm two minutes late, you know, what's the big deal? Is that really giving me competitive advantage? But, uh, you know, how, how would you handle that? How do we process that? It, it does um, kind of seem like a funny absolute rule. Um, is it an absolute rule? How do, how do we typ typically handle timeliness? It, it really depends upon the um, what type of evaluation it is. And, and there are different rules for um, a Part 15 procurements um, versus, uh, you know, uh, possibly a federal supply schedule or under a FAR Part 13, one of those procurements. Um, there is kind of a black letter rule for, for traditional government procurements that late is late. And there are some limited exceptions um, to that rule, but it's it's not always competitive prejudice that needs to be, be shown. Um, with There are some exceptions to that rule, so I think there could be times with there is no competitive prejudice, uh, especially in accepting quotes, when the government can um, potentially accept something late. Um, but it, it raises an, an issue. And, and the issue is, number one, whether the government should accept it, um, if that late quote or late proposal is accepted and is evaluated, that potentially raises a, a litigation issue at the, the other end. So an offer could look at it as, well, it's, it's not a big deal, but it, it's, it, it's, a, um, it's something that the government needs to deal with uh, initially and could also be a litigation issue if that, success, if that offer is successful. Um, in my experience as an attorney, any protest um, litigation uh, about any issues. I mean, the, the, the protester is going to go through the proposal, the circumstances of it, and when it was received, any term or condition that could potentially take an exception to a requirement is going to be raised as, as an issue. And we just want to avoid all those easy, easy issues. Yeah, so it definitely puts uh, the government in a precarious position if we get a late proposal and, you know, we have Absolutely. to figure out what to had to deal with it. Uh, Chuck, what are, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, so uh, if, I guess if offers have uh, questions regarding terms and conditions, it's better to raise those during the solicitation period before the proposals are due. Oftentimes, we're seeing offers pepper their proposal with assumptions. Um, if they contradict something that's already spelled out in, in the contract, that's, that's one thing. But oftentimes, there are assumptions that you know, perhaps we don't outline the time frame it's going to take the government to do something that's 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 required for the offer to uh, put a, a good price uh, proposal together. So the offer will take it upon themselves to make an assumption. Um, those things could often be addressed uh, up front during the question and answer period so that all offers are able to uh, get that information so that we can evaluate uh, fairly amongst everyone. Yeah, probably a good practice for the procurement team to give vendors th that time. I know it's easy to say that should happen, you know, pre-proposal, but uh, sometimes the procurement's rushed or the teams just don't afford the vendors that opportunity. And if it is afforded to the vendors, they need to um, take that opportunity and definitely ask those questions to alleviate some of those concerns yeah. or assumptions that they might have. And it is understandable that offers might have assumptions that didn't get addressed, uh, you know, in time for them to submit a proposal. And in those instances, we would ask that they consolidate their assumptions and put them in the appropriate volume as opposed to hiding them in uh, tab five of the price volume. <laughs> 
makes sense. Yeah. We, I think we've all been there. Example. Where, yeah, we, we find them, uh, you know, buried somewhere in the proposal. We have to figure out what to do with them uh, better to right. highlight them because sometimes, you know, th there has to be assumptions made for uh, for vendors to propose accurately, especially pricing. And uh, we should deal with those things before awards so we don't run into issues. Uh, so we definitely want vendors to highlight those things. Um, but it, it, it could disrupt the process if there, you know, there's a lot of assumptions or terms and conditions that we have to deal with. And maybe uh, some would preclude that vendor from winning, if, uh, d depending on exactly what those assumptions are. Chuck, I know you deal a lot in the uh, commodity world with software and whatnot. What happens if vendors submit uh, software license agreements with their proposal, make the proposal and pricing contingent upon us accepting that license? How, do, how does your group deal with that? Uh, well, if they contradict with uh, federal regulation or, uh, in some cases, statutes, they definitely have to be addressed and negotiated. Um, we work with Jamie's team to do that. Um, I guess some of the other things that we oftentimes see with the commodity world is that perhaps a license uh, does not, the period of performance of the licenses uh, don't directly uh, match with what the um, OEM thinks the term is going to be, so an offerer will... Uh, or a reseller will submit their own period of performance for those licenses, which now have to be uh, addressed before we can make an award. Or in some instances, we'll swap a, a different uh, commodity or piece of hardware out from what was asked in the solicitation. Um, all those things are contradictions to you know what was solicited that will have to be worked out. Yeah, I, I know I've definitely seen that where we get a proposal in and the pops don't align on a software term that uh, that we had solicited with. So um, definitely something we have to address. And sometimes the vendors are right. You know, the OEM has the accurate dates and we have to uh, submit an amendment, but uh, better to know those things prior to evaluating the, the quotes than, you know, we're getting close to award and all of a sudden we realize the quotes came in with a different pop. Um, so yeah, all things we have to address. Um, I don't know, Kara, anything uh, from T4NG land of, you know, the best value world, how you, um, consider the terms and conditions? Yeah, so um, we do get uh, assumptions and we ask that they put, that they're put in the proposal summary volume. So they're easily found, which usually is the case. So we don't have a lot of repeat offenders there. So we're good. Good, yeah. Yeah, and T4NG, it's nice. You kind of have that relationship with that group of vendors. So you kind of establish some processes and your expectations from them, and they follow pretty closely. Um, yes. I feel like on NASA Soup, we do a lot of work on NASA Soup, and that's you know kind of the same same thing with them. But uh, Open Market or on GSA, where we don't have that close relationship with the vendors, you, you do see a lot of these issues rearing their heads more. Um, just one other thing I was thinking of, uh, for vendors to consider is when they when they propose to make sure their volumes are consistent. What I mean by that is, um, you know, if they're proposing a major subcontractor in their past per uh, past performance volume, make sure that uh, in their technical volume they are citing the use of that you know vendor. If we're asking for maybe like a work breakdown structure or um, you know teaming arrangements or how they align the team and whatnot, because if that's inconsistent, we're gonna uh, likely pick that up. Um, or even in the veterans involvement uh, volume, if uh, you know there's a, a major subcontractor listed in past performance that's not listed in veterans involvement when we feel it should be, um, those are some things that uh, you know we could run into some issues and maybe have to open discussions to resolve those things. So um, I don't know any other considerations before uh, we move on. 
I just want to add one more thing um, that we want to make sure that the price proposal um, always reflects the technical approach. Um, I've seen this in many cases where it almost seems like two different contractor teams wrote the proposal. So one contractor team wrote up the tech proposal and another contractor team wrote up the price proposal. So that's one thing that I just want to uh, get out there is to please make sure that that those that those teams are synced up because on the government side, you can definitely tell when two different teams are writing those proposals. Yep. No, that's, that's good feedback for sure. So good. Um, so now, uh, you know, a lot of times we solicit and, um, you know, vendors obviously might need more time and sometimes it might be warranted, sometimes not. Uh, Chuck, I'm just curious from your perspective, how do you, if a vendor comes in and asks for an extension uh, of the proposal, how do you generally give it to them? What are some considerations you might have? Yeah, I think we like to be as flexible as we can with extensions. Um, you know, oftentimes if we feel we've given adequate time for an offer to, um, you know, put a proposal or a quote together, we would be less inclined to offer a multiple day extension. But, uh, you know, I think um, our goal is to get the best quality proposal or quote and have, you know, the maximum amount of competition. So, you know, when we can uh, do that and when the schedule affords us the opportunity, I think we like to be open-minded with uh, extensions. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Jamie, anything from a legal perspective? I mean, how would you advise a client when they come to you and ask if they should extend the solicitation period? The government has a lot of discretion as to whether or not they, they extend it. Um, we normally think it's a, it's a good idea to maximize competition. So to the extent that you can afford the uh, additional days for a proposal, um, it, it's it's always defensible to to extend to, to maximize the competition. So that would be the default. But as Chuck pointed out, there's considerations. Um, the time they need this uh, service or, or product uh, may um, preclude a, an extension, and those are all legitimate reasons. So the contracting officer has great discretion to to extend or, or not to extend, but Hopefully, at the end of the day, um, we want to maximize competition, so we we normally want to extend. Well, good, good. Um, anything else we should touch on on the uh, writing the proposal or uh, how we evaluate? Any any tips uh, for the government side or the vendors? I, I would jump back uh, quickly to what uh, Chuck had mentioned about the software license agreements. Um, we deal with them quite frequently at the the TAC, and and uh, my group often reviews them. Um, at a at a fundamental level, almost any commercial software license agreement that's not written with the government in mind is going to have many provisions that conflict with federal law that they can't be accepted by the the government. Um, so I I just want people to be aware. Um, those issues are going to have to be worked out ahead of time. If if there is a software license agreement that a contractor needs to have uh, attached as an addendum to an order, that there is a process for that. But the terms and conditions in that software license agreement will have to be negotiated with the, the government. Um, we typically have a governing law clause that Sort of lays out uh, the the rights and and what the government's you know won't be accepting and 
you know, won't enter into any agreements just clicking on the use of a software or the, the shrink wrap agreements that, that we used to see. Um, and, and that protects the, the government somewhat. But um, the bottom line is with the software license agreements, they, they can be incorporated into government orders, uh, but we'll be working through a lot of terms and, and conditions. And it's really unavoidable with some of the, uh, the statutes that the government has to follow. Yeah, I know um, there's there's periods where we can go a few months and I don't see one of them. But, and then, you know, we'll, uh, over a few weeks, I'll see 10 software license agreements come through. Um, they seem to all hit at once. And I know we, we typically send them to your office to look at. And they, they are very difficult to work through. Oftentimes, they're, you know, numerous pages. They're 20, 25 pages. And, uh, you know, you're really getting into some legalese. And they, they do take some time. There's nothing that can stop a procurement in its tracks, like trying to negotiate one of those. And, you know, the, there might be a reason for it. And uh, if, it, if it has to be negotiated, obviously um, we will. But uh, they are difficult. And uh, it is at times tough to bring the sides together um, as, you know, we're under, as you alluded to, certain statutes that uh, we, we can't just not follow. Um, and the vendors have to realize that. Um, I know, Chuck, uh, coming from you, any, uh, any closing thoughts? Anything you want to bring up? No, I think um, you guys covered it pretty well. Um, you know, one thing we did talk about assumptions and things. The other thing that we look for a lot is uh, any kind of like contingent liabilities that are thrown in proposals. Uh, those are pretty much uh, no goes from from our standpoint, uh, or it would have to be seriously negotiated. Um, but I, I, I think um, you know those instances are, are rare. So good. Well, thank you all. Uh, I guess we'll uh, close out the episode here, but uh, hopefully the listeners have some good considerations to follow, maybe some tips for proposing and kind of get a little peek behind the curtain to see what uh, we're up against and when we evaluate. Um, so uh, as I said, hopefully you found it all uh, beneficial. So uh, with that, um, I appreciate you all being on and I wish everyone the best. As always, we must remind you, the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media, products, or services they may provide. We thank you for listening to this episode of TAC Talks and hope you found it helpful. You may direct any questions or feedback to Mark Junda at mark.junda at va.gov. Until next time, my friends, may our contracting officers be given wide latitude to exercise business judgment. May program officials successfully manage contracts to deliver goods and services to our veterans and the American people. And may our contractors support our needs and be prosperous. <laughs>